Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Bad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, as always, available at all your finest retailers, and even some of your worst ones. <laughs> no, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> now, between the two of us, we have over 50 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. All right, and on today's episode, uh, unlike last episode, we're going to actually be heading to the pub to take care of some business. And then, of course, we're going to head into the brewery and talk about what we're brewing, what we're about to brew, what we're thinking about brewing, and what maybe we decided not to brew. <laughs> Does that confuse you? It confused me. Oh, well. It confuses me, yeah, but, you know, that's nothing new. No, nope, uh, that's just age and beer. That's right. <laughs> but before we can do any of that foolishness, take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Yeast's fourth quarter legacy curation features two legendary strains for autumn brewing, 1968 London ESB Ale and 1728 Scottish Ale. These yeast strains were isolated 30 years ago for our culture collection and continue to be brewmaster's top choices for traditional malty European ales today. Both are regarded for their high flocculation and suitability for strong and seasonal specialty styles like double IP smoked and barrel-aged beers, British bitters, barley wine, and more. Completing this curation are two limited-release lager favorites, 2000 Boudvar Lager and 2001 Pilsner Urkel H-Strain. Available now through the end of December, Boudvar Lager delivers rich maltiness and subtle fruit notes while allowing hop character to come through in Czech lagers and German Helles styles. The Pilsner Urkel Strain produces mild floral aromas and a clean, dry palate and full mouthfeel for Czech lagers and Bohemian-style Pilsners. Catch up on our latest blog posts and learn more about this release at yeastlab.com. Welcome back. We're going to start off, as usual, with some announcements. Right. And, of course, the announcement is, if you haven't noticed, your podcast feed may have been blowing up recently. Yeah. Uh, because we're releasing a lot of episodes as we get here to the end of the year, because we went, oh, we took too many breaks early on in the year. Mm. So, <laughs> let's see. What have we talked about recently? Like, the last episode of this show was the Anchor Union, or the right. Anchor SF Cooperative. We wish those guys luck. Go listen to that podcast, and you can find out how to support the effort to keep Anchor local to San Francisco. Uh, we've talked with about making mushrooms, how you grow them. And in fact, yeah, man. 
I'm looking forward. I'm going to start that kit real soon here. All right. Uh, I want some mushrooms on some toast. Uh, <laughs> beyond that, it's nuttiness. It's madness. There's lots of beer content for you to go listen to. And so, yeah, go look at your feed. And, of course, you can always look at www.experimentalbrew.com. Right. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation, a wonderful group of people who rescue dogs from shelters, teach them to be search dogs uh, in disasters, you know, and... We have way too many of those, unfortunately, and there's a huge need for this. And these people are saving these dogs so they can help save people. So help us help save the dogs who save the people so we can all be safe. Rescue the pooches. Yeah, please. All right. And now it's time for my favorite time of the show. It's time for your ultra-quick nano feedback. <laughs> and... One real quick piece of feedback from Graciani, who, of course, has been on the podcast multiple times. Uh, but Graciani wrote in to tell us about his experience with Blue Lake Hops. You remember a couple episodes back, we had uh, Aiden Cook from Blue Lake Hops on the podcast talking about their unique process and how to make fresh, frozen, wet hops for fresh, frozen, wet hop beers. Again, confusing myself. Yeah. Uh, but Blue Lake Hops out of Michigan. Uh, and Graciani wrote in to say that he used about a full pound of these Blue Lake Hops in Whirlpool uh, in a pale ale that he made and that it was bleeping delicious. I think is the <laughs> right way to put it. Knowing, knowing Graciani and the beers that he makes, I'm not surprised at all that he would dump in a full pound. Me either. But, and I'm also fully believing that it was bleeping delicious yeah yeah me too man uh next brew coming up for me is going to be a, a triple but after that i am going to be diving into those blue lake hops and seeing what i can come up with so nice to hear a good report from graciani yeah see i'm still hung up on the idea of i don't want to do a pale or an ipa just because i'm stubborn <laughs> well you know i'll do something uh, different but you know, it's kind of like cryo hops. That's what they're made for, you know. Uh, know. What else? Would, I know. Okay. No. I know, but work with me. Work with me. You know, I'm difficult in this. <laughs> in this. <laughs> well, I'm trying yeah. to be very accurate here. Okay, I, I, I'll see what you come up with, but uh, you know, I don't see any point in reinventing the wheel, swimming upstream, all those other cliches. Well, I mean, look. Again, what do we say in the opening every time? I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. I, I can't wait to see how weird and strange this one comes out to be. Yeah, got to live up to my uh, my moniker. All right. <laughs> I think after all that, it's time for us to go have a beer. Yeah, we've been talking about it. Let's go drink one. We're going to head over to the pub, and we'll see you there when we get back. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch two-in-one distillation system operates in either pot still or reflux mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. 
Learn more about the Air Still Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. for sticking around. We are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere out in cyberspace, and we're having a couple beers, which is what we do here. Drew's going to tell you about his first. Yep, so as we'll come into play here in just about a minute, uh, I was over at Eagle Rock last night, and I decided to have a couple beers, because, well, why wouldn't I have a couple beers if I'm at Eagle Rock Brewing Company? And the one that I started with was actually probably my favorite of the night because it was also a little different. It was their green bottle lager. Cool. Uh, if, you, if you can think about it, you can probably guess what they're going for. And even though it was served on draft, it was actually kind of interesting. It had a little bit of that sulfur component that you'd expect from a green bottle lager. But it was very refreshing, 4.8%, so not super stocking high. And, you know, to, to put it in the quotes of some of our finest representatives in the U.S. Congress, it drank good. <laughs> okay. Actually, I think that was an Alabama representative, not not U.S. Congress, but the point still stands. <laughs> good man, that's great. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really I'm really pleased to see how many more loggers we've been seeing over the past couple of years. Oh yeah, um, and I think they've been improving quality. Uh, so, and I'm not a German logger, it's not by any stretch of the imagination, but I've been really happy to see both the breadth and the availability of those rising and give me a chance to have something that's not just, you know, another hot bomb. Not that I argue about the value of a hot bomb. Yeah. Have something other than an IPA. Well, you know, 25 years ago, uh, people were going, oh, you know what? We're not going to brew loggers. They tie up the equipment for too long. They take too long. And, you know, maybe that was the reason, or maybe the reason was that people just weren't asking for them, you know? Mm-hmm. Breweries well, are going to make what people want to buy. So if people start getting back into loggers, then breweries are going to start brewing them. And I think that, you know, maybe maybe a little buzz got started out there, and it, it's kind of like build up and expanding. Yeah, and I think there was some of that chauvinistic point of view of craft beer at the time of like, yeah, well, loggers, the, the thing that the big guys do, we're not doing that. 
Yeah, yeah. well, and, and fortunately, craft loggers aren't much like that. Yep. So, again, ERB green bottle lager, tasty. It would probably be tastier if it was hotter, but I'll deal at 68 degrees. <laughs> Und you, sir? Well, uh, I guess we are both going for local breweries that most people won't be able to get a hold of this time. I just uh, made a trip out to Alesong again to pick up my uh, latest quarterly allotment. And one of the beers in there was their French 75, which you've heard me talk about before. Uh, it's a good I beer. Oh man, it, it may be in my mind just about the perfect beer. Uh, it's a uh, farmhouse ale with, with Brett, but it's not the, it's not the funky Brett, you know, it's the nice fruity Brett, uh, aged in long tom gin barrels, uh, with a healthy dose of lemon based on the French 75 cocktail, if you're familiar with that. Uh, and man, is that a great beer? Um, I, I buy 12 bottles a quarter. That's what I committed to in my, uh, my blenders club membership. And this time six of those 12 bottles were French 75. It is such a really good beer. Um, and uh, yeah, if you don't remember what a French 75 cocktail is, imagine a Tom, Tom Collins, which is basically gin, lemon, sugar, and soda water or club soda. Right. Uh, but the French 75 is a Tom Collins, but sub and champagne for the club soda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. this beer doesn't quite pack the punch of a French 75, uh, but it's tasty. Yeah, it really is. And what was really interesting, we had uh, met a couple friends out there who'd come down from Seattle and neither one of them really are Brett beer fans, and they both just absolutely love that beer. Ale Song is incredibly clever and experienced at the use of various strains of Brett. They know what to do, when, and how much, and man, this beer shows it. So should you be lucky enough to get your hands on some Ale Song French 75, and they do ship to a few states, I believe, Ale Song Brewing and Blending, uh, you want to try this beer, believe me. Yeah, and don't try the Finch 75 cocktail for your New Year's party. At least don't try multiples of them. <laughs> Do you speak from experience there? I plead the fifth. <laughs> okay, we'll just leave it at that, huh? Yep. All right, and so from these beers that we're having, I had said that I went to Eagle Rock last night, and that prompted one of these stories that we're about to tell. Because while I was there, hanging up all around the, the brewery, and if you've ever been to Eagle Rock, it's not a terribly large space. Right? No, it's I would say it's a tiny space. Yeah, well, I mean, the tap room is definitely tiny. The back has right. some room in it. But um, the whole place right now is currently crammed to the gills with stuff, cans, tanks, everything else. And they have had a bunch of signs hanging up around the brewery saying, oh, don't mind the dust. We're getting roommates. And I'm beginning to think that this might be a thing that we see more of now in the brewing world, given where everybody's going in terms of rents and costs and revenues and all that. But basically what ended up happening was there's a brewery that was started by a former head brewer at Eagle Rock Brewing Company, Lee Bukowski. And Lee's brewery, uh, which is called Party Beer, lost their lease in West Adams. Uh, and because West Adams is an up-and-coming neighborhood, and the landlord decided they wanted something other than a brewery in there. So they literally had a couple of weeks to move and shut down the brewery. And so while they were looking around trying to figure out what they were going to do and not just lose the brewery, 
Turns out that Eagle Rock needs to, you know, had some room and needed some help paying the bills because that's what's happening right now in the craft beer world. And so Lee's having a bit of a homecoming and becoming Eagle Rock's uh, roommates. So out with Eagle Rock's very old, janky, strange, mid-90s dairy tank equipment uh, brew system, which, Denny, I know you've seen. I've actually worked on it, and boy, did I not like doing that. And in with Party Beer's modern system, but they're going to be sharing the space, and it's going to now be Eagle Rock Brewing Company and Party Beer and they, I think they're still trying to figure out what they're going to do for the tap room itself. But um, needless to say, I think it's kind of interesting. We've had these alternating proprietorships in the past. Uh, I've always wondered why to be a brewery, you had to have your own gear. That was just your own gear because most part that gear sits idle, right? Right. So, so instead of, taking on the capital cost all by yourself, why not split that out and actually turn around and spend your money where you actually need to spend it? So, Or, or do something like Ailsong does. They don't have a brewing system at all uh, because there are so many breweries around these days that have extra capacity. So they uh, partner up with a couple other breweries and go and brew on their systems when it's time for them to brew. Yeah, we saw that here in L.A. with Celador uh, Celador uh, uh, Brewing. Right. And they, just like Ailsong, specialize in mixed fermentations. And they, they've never had their own brew rig. And so now Celador had lost their original taproom space, and they're now co-resident with Smog City Brewing Company in Torrance. And so I would suspect they're brewing their beer at Smog City and then moving the wort. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what Ailsong does. They, uh, they go brew someplace else, uh, uh, bring the wort back to their warehouse location, and uh, ferment it there, and then uh, start blending and putting it in barrels after that. Yeah, it, but it is funny to me because it seems to mostly apply in the world of mixed culture fermentation where I've seen that happen. Really? That's interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. I can't think of any, at least off the top of my head, I can't, I can't think of any sort of nominally clean, please hear the quotes around clean, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. clean uh, beer company that does that sort of, we produce the wort over here, truck it over here to do the fermentation. Um, but hey, it, it works. And uh, anything that keeps these breweries and ideas alive, I'm all for. Right, exactly. All and right. now for something completely different. And now for something completely transparent. <laughs> yeah. I saw this pop up the other day on one of my feeds, and it's from Outsider Brewing around about Asheville area, I believe in North Carolina. And they've put together a whole patented uh, transparent brewing system because uh, their whole thought was, well, you know, we really need to improve beer education and get people to understand what goes on in the product and, and the process. And so they've built this thing that is, I mean, literally it's a clear brewing system. Now, by the way, it's not the first clear brewing system out there in the world, uh, but I just thought it was very interesting to see them produce this and kind of try and go, we're doing this for people's education uh, and try and get people more invested in the process and understanding what's happening. But it's very, very cool because you can actually see the whole thing of like, oh, yeah, here's the mash tun and here's here's the mash actually in action, piped over into a boiler so it can boil and you can see what's happening in there. So I just thought it was kind of cool to see. Pun not actually intended, but hey, there we are. <laughs> but there you are. Um, and just to see attempts to do more education and – 
The only question I have, other than the longevity of the system, is will the average punter care? I don't think they will. Yeah, I, I would have to say so, too. Uh, you know, I, I read that and said, oh, we want to educate the public about how beer is brewed. It's like, well, good on you, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I think that that is the kind of thing that only a beer geek would care about, and maybe beer geeks already know. So, yeah, at but any I mean, rate, still, I think it's a pretty cool piece of kit. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I agree, man. Uh, you know, we'll just have to we'll just have to see if uh, <laughs> their idea takes off. Hopefully, it will. But if it doesn't, they still got a darn cool system. Yeah, and. Uh, I, I can't remember. We we had an interview with a brewmaster on a ship. I don't know if we ever actually put that into the podcast. Um, but we had an interview with a brewmaster on a ship, and they have a completely transparent mash tun. So, right. you know, showing people on a cruise ship how how that works. So, still kind of cool to see. <laughs> Not much to see in a mash tun, is there? Just a bunch of grain sitting there in water. It looks like oatmeal. <laughs> yeah, really, really, man. All right, and final story of the day. Everybody here knows that Denny and I are both, uh, uh, what's the term the kids are using these days? Uh, sober curious. Oh, I thought uh, you were going to say Riz. <laughs> no, I can, I can definitely not pull that off. Um, there's a lot of the talk that we've had about low alcohol and non-alcoholic beer, right? And there's also been a lot of talk that we've had about hard seltzer. So just this last week, White Claw, the people who sort of kicked off and promoted the hell out of the hard seltzer craze has announced that they've released white claws zero their non-alcoholic hard seltzer let that sink in for half a second uh, uh, i just I don't, I don't know what to say man i'm speechless yeah well so the very first question that you would have of course is isn't a zero percent hard seltzer just seltzer water like LaCroix? <laughs> you would think so. Um, and that's exactly what my uh, my first thought was. But uh, Mark Anthony Brands, uh, who are the makers of White Claw, they had a whole press release together about it. And the one thing that intrigued me, that made me kind of stop and go, I wonder how this works, is that what they claim is different about the White Claw Zero, as opposed to just going and buying seltzer water in a can, is that they've done something, not specified, to replicate the flavor of an experience of alcohol in the seltzer. So somehow their 0% seltzer is still supposed to carry kind of a little bit of that, that alcohol tinge, which of course, one, isn't the whole point of white claw not to taste alcoholic. <laughs> I don't know, man. I've, I've never had one, so I have no idea what it tastes like. I have, they, they, they taste like stale water. And I know what's stale water, but that's, that's always been my impression on it. So I, the only thing that makes me curious about this, other than the fact that this is, you know, you old bog standard skew extension, right? Right. Uh, you know, somebody, somebody's extending the brand, you know, go get that leftover money out of somebody's wallet, uh, is I'm curious as to what they mean by we've added something to make it, to replicate the alcohol experience in terms of flavor. <laughs> uh, alcohol. Did they add alcohol? I would think that that would be a problem with calling it a zero percent seltzer. Then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you know, this is one of those things that just—I don't know. What can you say about people? 
Yeah. I mean, and of course the, the other part I love in the marketing releases, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, it's like white claws says alcohol gives hard seltzers their distinct taste and flavor. No, that's usually flavoring agents. Um, and claims that the new offering will bring the same experience. But, uh, <laughs> This is what I love because this feels like it's straight out of idiocracy. Each 12-ounce can contains 2 grams of sugars and 15 calories, as well as hydrating electrolytes. <laughs> well, I know that's what I've been missing. Well, it's what plants crave. Um, but there we go. So White Claw Zero, because why not? Yeah, <laughs> or maybe why. Well, yeah, you can split, or you can split that into why not. <laughs> so there you go that's the news that we have right now in the pub i think it's time to go brew something yeah we're gonna head over when we get there we're gonna tell you what we've been brewing what we'd like to brew what the plans are for the future and anything else we can think about stick around we're gonna be right back the ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome to the brewery where things are shiny and bubbling. Drew, what you been up to? Uh, not much because my brewery is a wreck right now. We got lots <laughs> just of like the rest fart. of your life. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's got lots of uh, tools laying around and projects in flight. Denny has pictures of me doing woodworking, you know, all that sort of <laughs> Imagine stuff. Imagine that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, right now the brewery is a little bit of a mess. So I've got a couple things on the plate though. One, I'm going to be brewing up a Falcon's Claws, and that was one of the episodes that we just released was 
us talking about the differences between the old and the new Falcon's Claws recipe and why you should use the new one and not the one I wrote around in 2001 or so. <laughs> um, so I'm getting ready to brew that up, a couple packs of S- S-189, so it's ready to go whenever I need it to. Uh, and then otherwise, I'm about to hit a holiday break. Uh, my company does that whole thing of like use it or lose it vacation. Uh, so right. you know, if, if you don't get all your vacation done by the end of the year, then well, you lose out on that money and time. And well, I don't like losing out on money or time. And so I'm just going to take the rest of the year off for a while. <laughs> hey, it's about time. It, well, yeah. Uh, by the way, you know, the companies that do this, you can always guarantee. They ain't getting poop done during December. <laughs> That's true, huh? So, but what I'm going to do is, aside from closing up some projects around the house, like again, more woodworking, uh, <laughs> somehow I've become Ron Swanson without the mustache. <laughs> um, is I'm going to rearrange and reactivate my brewery space and kick all the crap to the curb so I can actually uh, work in here and do a couple of other things that, like, one is I have uh, my gardener and I were talking about it. We think the persimmon tree is probably about 60 to 70 years old. It is a 30-foot-tall persimmon tree. It is a massive, massive tree. Yeah, that's big. Yeah, and every year, this thing drops about 900 little damn hand grenades on your head um, between the squirrels and the birds and everything else. So what I'm going to do is I've got the persimmons. I've started, I've started harvesting them. You know, yes, imagine me up on a big, tall ladder with a spiky basket thing going, please don't fall, please don't fall, please don't fall. Um, and I've pa- gathered up. Paula saw that picture and went, oh, hey, I've got one of those, too. Yeah, right. I mean, they're everywhere. Um, I've got probably, well, I've probably got about 15 pounds of persimmons so far. And I'm going to pulp them and turn them into a puree and then freeze it so it holds. Um, it's going to be a lot of food mill exercise. Um but what I want to do with that is I want to take and turn that into persimmon wine you know, or persimmon mead, depending upon the strength of the pulp and all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, I imagine I'll have to do some sort of sugar addition, so why not mead? And then I'm going to take part of that and I'm going to turn it into persimmon brandy because that just sounds good. You know, save back some of the persimmon, use it to sweeten it up, kind of like a like an eau de vie. Yeah. Uh, and so that's kind of what I got going on at the moment. Wow, if anybody man. has any experience with persimmons out there and how really best to preserve it, let me know. Persimmons need to be cooked before they can be eaten. I don't know if that refers to fermentation, but is that correct? No. Uh, the, the main thing with persimmons is there are two primary varieties. Well, there's the American wild persimmon, which is a whole other critter. Right. But there are two primary varieties that we see here in the U.S. these days that aren't wild. And uh, they're both Asian persimmons. And one's called a fuyu or a tomato persimmon, and you pick it up, it looks like an orange tomato. Right. Uh, those are considered a non-astringent variety. Okay. And so those can be eaten relatively unripe. Um, wow. they, they'll be tart, obviously, but they aren't very astringent. The other variety, which are called uh, chaya or uh, acorn uh, persimmons, right. which, guess what? They look like an acorn, big orange acorn. Those are astringent. And okay. if you don't allow them to ripen, they are nasty. They are they are hard to deal with. And so right. what you have to what you have to do is you basically have to allow them to ripen into almost jelly. You know, I I thought I, I guess what I thought that I had heard was that they were something like you know poisonous or something if they weren't cooked first. But apparently, are, that's are you not sure the you're not case. thinking rhubarb? 
No, 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 no. Because rhubarb has oxalic acid, but I, I haven't heard that about persimmons. I guess yeah, I well, do, do a search. Yeah, I, I guess maybe so. And I, like, I could be wrong. I think that I remember that, but you know what my memory's like. <laughs> Full of holes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at the very least. So here we go. Untamed science says yes, persimmons can kill you, uh, but it's not because they're toxic or poisonous. It says instead because when they're unripe, they have a unique chemical in their tissues that will aid in forming a food lump in the stomach, known as a phytobazor, uh, or specifically, uh, you know. So yeah, basically, there's something in the tannin compounds, uh, shebol. Uh, basically uh, allows you to get like a food clump in your stomach. So yeah, don't uh, apparently don't eat a raw astringent persimmon. Okay. I promise you I won't. There you go. (laughs) So, but again, if anybody's got any, any experience with persimmons, let me know because uh, I got a lot of them. Yeah. And he doesn't want to die. No, not yet. (laughs) Not yet. At least. Yeah. All right. Mr. Dincenzo. Okay, well, I think maybe you might remember a couple months ago I was talking about how I was going to brew the homebrew version of Denny Kong, um, and I thought maybe I would just give a bit of a report on how that turned out, which was freaking delicious. (laughs) I wouldn't know, because you haven't sent me one. I know, and I I have to do that. I just kind of tapped the second keg, so I'll try and get some into a bottle and get that down there to you with your, along with your 702 so that you can try making a batch yourself. There you go. Um, The the beer is great. I mean, you know, I'm not going to tell you that it is a clone of Denny Kong and tastes exactly the same, but whenever I make an homage like that, my entire goal is to at least get it close enough so you can tell what I was shooting for. Um, and that is definitely the case in this. It, it has that, uh, tropical fruitiness along with the firm bitterness and some, uh, nice, uh, lemon citrus kind of notes to it. Uh, totally, totally enjoying it. Uh, mine turned out a little bit stronger. Mine came in at 7.4% because it uh, fermented down farther. Uh, to to which I, I I should also address the hop creep question because people are asking me a lot about that because of all the dry hops in this and and the fact that also while I am normally a person who likes to dry hop uh, at, at cold temperatures because the original beer wasn't I went ahead and dry hopped it at sixty eight just like uh, Kelsey had done and I could not detect anything like continued fermentation or hop creep or anything like that. Uh, the gravity after I dry hopped it was say within a, a point or so of where it was prior to dry hopping it. Um, uh, so, you know, it could be that it just still had another point or two to go. Uh, you know, I can't say that it wasn't hop creep, but I don't see any signs that it was. The only way I could possibly know for sure was if I had another batch that I'd made that I didn't dry hop to compare. And who'd want to do that? So I, I guess I can say that at this point, my thoughts on hop creep uh, are the same as they have remained, uh, which is, you know, it just is not that much of an issue for home brewers, uh, at least for me as a home brewer. 
And I, I dry hop this, I think, to the tune of about 12 ounces per five gallons, which is really getting up there. Yeah, I know. Uh, maybe because it, you know, it was all cryo. Uh, you know, well, I guess it wasn't all cryo, but it was mainly cryo. Mm-hmm. So maybe without that much brack, there wasn't as much diastatic power in the hops. I, I don't know, but hop creep did not seem to be an issue with it. Well, it could uh, also be, I could see like an impact from, you know, how much yeast is left in suspension, how, like how much time you gave it. Um, uh, th- there was, there was a lot of yeast left in suspension because I hadn't dumped any yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave the hops probably, well, overall, right, it's a double dry hop, so the first dose of hops was probably in there for close to a week by the time it uh, it got kegged. So I would think that that would be enough for it to occur if it was going to occur. Hmm. So, you know, at, at any rate, I would say <laughs> you can't really say one way or another, uh, at least on this beer. Remind uh, me, how did you solve the dip hop problem? Uh, I didn't dip hop. So you uh, just add the 702 as a whirlpool or something? Yeah, exactly. I, okay. I I cooled it down to like about 170, 165, something like that. Uh, added the added the 702. Uh, 702, uh, I guess in case you <laughs> weren't listening to previous episodes, is uh, uh, kind of like a hop extract, uh, an oil. Uh Great thing about it is it's extremely flowable. I was uh, expecting to have this stuff just stick in the bottle and have a heck of a time getting it out, and it just poured very, very nicely. Um, for me, the biggest thing that I got out of this beer was the fermentables. I am just absolutely loving the combination of Pils malt, Vienna malt, and that little touch of sugar. And I think that, I think it was like 5% uh, sugar. And I think that that is now going to become a standard addition to any IPA that I make. Because, you know, like in Belgian beers where the idea is to make them kind of light bodied and extremely drinkable, uh, that is exactly what happens with the IPA when you do that. You get great flavor from the, uh, the uh, raw North Star pills combined with a touch of the uh, Wireman Vienna malt. And then you put in 5% sugar on top of that to kind of like drop the body down a little bit. And it is a dangerously drinkable beer. Yeah, at least according to our notes, you know, on the recipe on the site, it's only about 2% sugar. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't remember. But it, at any rate... um it, it it works, and I'm going to continue doing that in my IPAs. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's a very Southern California sort of trick. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? And it's it's a standard thing for, uh, like, double IPAs and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you always put sugar in those. But, um, you know, for just a regular IPA, a little bit um, is is really, really a good idea, in my opinion. Uh, if you haven't tried it, try it. Uh, I just use regular table sugar, as I do for almost everything. Uh, it's worth it. There you go. Uh, and then uh, what about the alt? Okay, yeah, I just uh, I just kegged an alt beer. Um, our 
dear friend Larry Clouser uh, sent us uh, some malt from Montana Craft Malt, a company he's working for these days. And we're going to have Larry on the show here pretty soon to talk about it. Uh, I am just loving, absolutely loving the flavor of the malt. Uh, it's it's rich and malty without being over the top. It, it, it's a clean, <laughs> rich maltiness, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Uh, you know, like... Uh, we're both big fans of, you know, malt made with full pint barley, right? But full pint has its own unique flavor, which is not bad. Uh, it, you know, it, I mean, not bad. I mean, it's not a bad thing. Uh, and it works really, really well a lot of the time. The flavor of the Montana craft malt is different from the, the, uh, full pint malt. And I don't, I don't know what barley variety Montana is using. I, I think it's set on the bags, but I don't recall. Uh, but it's, it, it's almost like a, a cleaner, straight ahead malt flavor. But by that, I don't, I don't mean that it's like weak or insipid or anything like that. It is a great, great full flavored malt, but a very clean flavor, right? No, no, no side notes. Uh, does that make any sense whatsoever? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other thing I was going to mention too is I have been using uh, Wise 1007 in my alts for OGs oh, in excess of 20 years. Uh, I absolutely love the yeast, and there are people who say, "Oh man, you know, I have a terrible time getting that yeast to flocculate," and I've never run across that before. I've always gotten great flocculation from it until this current batch. Um, and while the beer looks crystal clear, when you drink it, you kind of get a, a dusty, gritty mouthfeel from it that is the yeast that's still in suspension. So, uh, I left it, I left it for a couple weeks in the, uh, in the uh, fermenter at about 35 degrees. Uh, I ferment this beer at 53. Uh, believe it or not, Wise 1007 loves to work at 53 degrees. So then I left it for a couple of weeks at 35, and it it cleared pretty well. Uh, now it's kegged and sitting in a cooler, waiting to clarify a little bit more. It is still a delicious, delicious beer. You can taste that malt. Uh, I hopped. It ended up being about a 1052 beer that I hopped to about 40 IBUs because that's the way I like my alts. Um, and you know, it, it's really delicious. But again, when you drink it. You can almost feel the grittiness, you know, when you when you clench your teeth or something like that, uh, even though you can't see it. So it's just going to sit there until it's ready. Um, and this this kind of goes back to uh, a question we got asked a, a few shows ago uh, about, you know, should I age my beer? Should I not age my beer? And the answer is <laughs> the beer will answer that question for you. Uh, you know, this beer, uh, it needs... A little bit more time before it's at its peak. Uh, Denny Kong, on the other hand, when it came out of the fermenter, it was ready to go. It didn't need any more time whatsoever. So no hard and fast rules, people. Pay attention uh, and, and listen to what the beer is telling you. There you go. Beer will tell you. That's right. Yep. Uh, what was the old uh, Lagunitas... Uh uh, slogan, uh, beer speaks, people mumble. Something like that. <laughs> drink, drink no beer before it's time, and yeah. it's time. <laughs> exactly. 
Woo! It's been running for five minutes. Let's drink it. And speaking of which, let's get out of here and get the people on their way. All right. We are going to take another quick break here. And when we come back, we will have the quick tip. We'll have something other and we'll send you on your Merry Christmas way. Stick around. We'll be right back. With Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a pack of hops. It's supporting family farms. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned hop supplier whose mission is to connect hop growers and brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is proud to have an established return-to-grower program which redistributes an average of 75% of their business earnings back to the family farms who grow the hops in your beer. Where you buy your ingredients matters, and with Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a pack of hops. Learn more at yakimachief.com slash return dash growers. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Give or receive an American Homebrewers Association membership by December 31st and select a free brewing book of your choice. This holiday season, purchase one-year membership and choose from 60 different beer and brewing books to meet your goals. Why I suggest simple homebrewing? Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for details. Hurry, this offer expires December 31st. It is time for us to wrap things up and get out of here. Uh, I'll start off with a quick tip, and it's something we just discussed, which is the beer makes the schedule. Don't be one of those people who say, oh, man, it's got to have two weeks or it's got to have four weeks or whatever. Uh, try the beer. Listen to the beer. Watch the beer. The beer will tell you what it wants. So remember always, the beer makes the schedule, not the calendar. Yeah, and if you need beer for a party, plan ahead and give yourself a little extra time. Yeah, right. You know, either that or pick a beer that's going to be ready in three days, like a ten twenty something. <laughs> well, I think I can turn if I try. I can turn my mild around at about four to five. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, there we go. So, beer makes the schedule. And now, of course, it's time for something other than beer because man cannot live on beer alone. You must educate your mind, tease it. And so I actually have two things, one of which is not going to be controversial, and the other one, which will probably make Denny gack. Um, <laughs> the first one is I've been watching uh, recently The Gilded Age on HBO or Max, if you do the streaming service. And it is the sequel series or prequel series, actually prequel series, from Julian Fellows, a.k.a. the guy who created Downton Abbey and seems to absolutely be obsessed with the idea of upper class and lower class people. Uh, but this time, The Gilded Age takes place in New York City. And oddly enough, it takes place during The Gilded Age, which was that period of time in the 1880s and whatnot, the time of the robber barons and, you know, Gould and Carnegie and all those people. Um, and the show is about 
absolutely horrible people who care about weird, stupid etiquette crap. The clothing is fantastic. Uh, and it, the, the visuals are absolutely stunning. But I keep waiting for the serving staff to rise up and stab everybody with their oyster forks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I will say this. So many hats. So many <laughs> absolutely fabulous hats. Um, the other one. Now we get into the place where Denny's going to gack. And I just added this into the script at the last minute here because I was thinking about it. The other day I got reminded um, of the Seaberg 1000. Denny, you're an old audio guy. Do you remember the Seaberg 1000? Uh, is this like a jukebox? Kind of. It's the commercial music jukebox. The, you know, sort of a Muzak player. Yeah. Uh, right? Uh, big platters of records that would play over and over again in the record stores or the in the in the stores. And what it actually really reminded me of is like going to the grocery store today. You go and you hear yeah, a whole bunch of songs that are targeted towards my generation. Uh at, but a lot of pop songs and rock songs and all that sort of fun stuff. And, of course, right now, a ton of holiday music. Oy, endless holiday music. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it got me to thinking, there are channels out there on YouTube. There's literally a website called Seaberg1000.com. They're dedicated to preserving old commercial retail music. So things like everybody's favorite, Muzak. Uh, by the way, music is still actually around. I think they call themselves mood music now. Uh, but, uh, Denny, I know you probably have the opinion, and I had the opinion for the longest time, of, you know, music is crap, right? It's terrible. Yeah, but, you know, you learn to appreciate it for what it is after yeah. you're beaten over the head with it for enough years. Yeah, if you, well, if you, and also if you have to listen to Mariah Carey on repeat, you know, 900 times, <sighs> it turns out music is actually kind of nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there are lots of YouTube channels out there. And like I said, there's the Seaberg1000.com uh, website. They literally rescue old versions of this sort of retail music and keep it playing on, on channels. The reason why I'm saying it kind of in defense of it and rescuing it is it's actually really good working music. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, no, because it's the sort of thing that you can just put on the background, put it in low, right? right. And, and just have it kind of play in the background. It sort of engages part of your brain while you're off doing other things. Um, it's very much the old version, uh, the old people version of the uh, lo-fi hip-hop beat stuff that you find on YouTube that uh, kids today use to study. Right. So, well, in defense of music. <laughs> no, man, uh, I can listen to it, but I don't work, so I guess maybe uh, I'll have to find some other reason to listen to it. Yeah. It doesn't have a beat, and you can't dance to it, but it's perfectly acceptable. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I like about it, man. Uh. <laughs> Okay, thank you everybody for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on X, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, Drew hangs out on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrewing channel, maybe. Uh, you can find me hanging around the AHA discussion forum. I spend a whole bunch of time at Facebook. Uh, I'm in the brew house at the beer garden. I'm in a bunch of places. Uh, go cruise around the internet. You'll find me somewhere. He's basically tied into his iPad at all times. Yeah, that's right. 
If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can call us and leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1-ALE, 626-765-1-ALE. If Drew answers, you get the prize, whatever that is. And I'll ask you, what the, what's, the, what's the noise like? <laughs> really? <laughs> can you make the noise for us? So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.